This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 193, brought to you in association with Smart and EnlistedBoard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Antoine Argouge, founder of TulipShare, to discuss a fresh topic that we have never covered before, namely using the power of tech to influence companies to change for the better, governance tech, if you like, for the GameStop generation, and also for the rest of us who see corporatism going wrong. As a way into this topic, it's simplest to quote from TulipShare's website, the intro being... Make your voice heard. You invest in company stocks and we leverage your shareholder rights. By unifying your investing power with other like-minded investors, we can advocate on your behalf to promote ethical change, which sounds pretty good and pretty innovative. TulipShare creates campaigns to which you can subscribe, so their governance tech is very democratic. To make their campaigns successful, people not only need to sign up for them, but need to invest in the shares of the company, to build up enough of a combined voice to make a difference. We've covered the whole sphere of ethical investment before, and it's a good thing. However, I tend myself to be slightly suspicious about the word ethical. Not because I don't believe that the world needs an entire ethical reboot. It absolutely does big time, in my opinion. But rather, that the word ethical can all too easily these days end up being some identikit, cookie-cutter, American campus neoliberal views that you can expect your child to spout on a wide variety of topics, having done a liberal arts topic at pretty much any Western university. He says being exposed to plenty of 20-somethings in the last couple of years straight out of university. So, most interestingly for me, is that A, TulipShare have created a democratic platform. It's only by their members, or you, the listeners, joining in that a campaign gets momentum, and B, More precisely, they're diving into specific actionable topics. To make this concrete, the leading campaign on their platform right now is to lobby Apple to allow independent and third-party technicians to fix Apple products, which can only be a good idea for owners of Apple. Another campaign is lobbying Amazon to ensure fair and safe working environments for their warehouse workers. So you see what I mean? TulipShare has real concrete actionable campaigns to address specific failures of ethicless corporatism. Sad to say, there are no shortage of these, and I don't think Tulip Share is going to run out anytime soon. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Antoine. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hey, Mike. Thank you for having me. So, as a chit-chat to get the whole thing going before we dive into exciting and serious matters like governance tech, me having mentioned being exposed to plenty of 20-somethings fresh out of university the last few years as my daughters and actually Bridget's sons in the last few years have been leaving university. That world, along with the rest of it, has changed quite a lot since I was there. And one big thing these days is dating, dating and mating. I mean, that's always been a big thing. Otherwise, none of us would exist. But actually, technology intrudes on everything these days. And uh, I believe you know a little bit about um, dating and dating apps. Yeah, no, exactly, Mike. So I've worked for seven years in the dating space for some of the biggest players out there. And really, it's I've always tried in my career to have an impact on people's life and what's better than help people, you know, find love or meet someone new. So it was really a, one of 
crazy adventure that ended up into me um, setting up a, a dating app for the over 50 market. Uh, so not necessarily just the, the 20 something at university, because ultimately today everyone is actually concerned about about you know meeting people and on and online uh, and online dating is is the number one reason where people actually meet someone else whatever their age so it's a great industry to work in and i, I was really proud to have uh, have had my little impact in this i see well it's interesting that it, it is speciating into the different groups and i assume that different demographics or different um, subsets of the human race will actually have different needs and therefore need sort of kind of different products around that i mean it's a it's a bit of a fatuous question to ask, but what do you think was sort of some of the main things you learned by working in, in, in that industry about tech or, or business per se that's transferable into other sectors? First, the dating uh, world is a very competitive landscape. So there are lots of competitors and uh, users are uh, if it, sometimes very loyal to a brand, to a product, to an app, but sometimes as well trying to maximize their chance to meet new people. So by nature, it is a, it's a very competitive business. So therefore, as someone who's building product for this of this audience, you know you have to be uh, um, building the best product and the best service out there to retain your audience and to make sure that they're satisfied about the service. So it's really a true consumer product building journey uh, at heart. And, and this is something that I've learned and that I'm reutilizing today in the community that we're building within TulipShare. Yes, interesting, isn't it? I mean, the, the good thing about the, the B2C, especially in... Um spaces with plenty of competition, is that you really have to sharpen your pencil very well. You can't just come up with some sort of half-baked idea and hope to succeed. So filling that out a bit more to your career journey, what was it that led you into that space and into being a founder? Did you always want to be a founder at university one day or did you just sort of, well, back in my day, people used to go to university and forget about the working thing for as long as possible. But uh, these days, plenty of people go up to university thinking, I want to be an entrepreneur three years later or something like that. What, what, what was your journey? After high school, I got a master's degree at the university uh, specializing in marketing. And uh, I ended up working for a, a massive media brand, which was starting their first mobile apps team. So that was 2009. And it was two years after the launch of the iPhone. And it was the year where actually they introduced the App Store. So two years after the iPhone, you had the App Store, the first apps, and app developers started to emerge. And actually, I was working for this this massive media corporation, and they were <laughs> they were asking like, okay, show of hands, who wants to work in the mobile apps team? And uh, I kind of like say, okay, let's go and try it. And ultimately, you know, the numbers were there. The apps uh, apps uh, traffic was just booming for every product and every online services. So, you know, in hindsight, it was the right call <laughs> not to stay uh, working either for the web team or the, the, the traditional media product. So, yeah, moving on to the apps uh, business then led me to the dating uh, app space and then uh, one company to another to another. Then the boom of, uh, you know, obviously online dating and, and led to uh, where, where, I, where we are today. So, yeah, I worked for some of the biggest players in the space uh, and, um, and ended up starting my own dating app. And now moving on to another venture, which was uh, which is also affecting people's life, which is um, shareholder activism and uh, corporate governance through TulipShare. Now, it's interesting because in a way you combine what I see as sort of yin and yang approaches to career, and we all need them both, uh, some at different times and some at others. So in terms of doing the marketing, clearly you were doing something that was sort of relevant to business, unlike having talked about daughters, for example, English literature, which... There isn't much call for English literature apps or anything like that out there. But at the same time, as I've seen across my career, the world is a, an interesting place in that 
often new things are developing. So a wave will happen. And if you are at the right place at the right time and you take that opportunity, there are, you know, we all get opportunities in life. I've forgotten who it was, but somebody said that uh, uh, at the end of your life, you regret the things that you didn't do not the things that you did but didn't work out. At least you gave it a go. And being in at the beginning of a phase where something is growing is super valuable. Uh, you can learn so much. And all too often, of course, you know, early adopters, late adopters and that. I mean, I remember in the year, uh, people joined at the end of a phase. So for example, I remember in all oh, about 2014 when the podcast was getting going and FinTech was going in London, there were lots of free drinks all over the place on, on Friday evening so they can drink about, which is great fun actually. And I speak to a lot of people and a lot of people in 2014 were still saying, hey, I want to make an app. I want to make an app. But by then, most spaces have been colonized and people's phone is only so big and they've only got so much headspace for sort of so many apps. So super important to be in, in at the early uh, stage um, of a wave. And even more, even more for people who just, you know, come out of uni or want to start on their first job is really taking this risk and try to identify trend. It's going to help you all along your career, whether you want to be a founder or not. If you are on a rising tide, you know, you're definitely going to make it. And that's uh, and that's that's what you want. You know, you want to work for a company that have this double digit growth. You want to have you want to work for companies that have this uh, this this appetite to go global and to and to and to and to just keep riding on it. And there are, you know, it's not like, oh, it was something that mobile apps and now we've missed the boat. And, you know, there it's continuously coming. Technology by itself, by design, will keep creating new opportunities. When I was at uni, we were not even told about, you know, digital product or online marketing or online acquisition or uh, just product building for, uh, for web uh, services. It was not even taught, and you know, and I'm sure today, you know, there there are some uh, some 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 sort of education where people are getting, but it's always you know five to ten years delay. So uh, you know, my advice is definitely go into something generic, either as engineering or as business, and then try to find your own uh, your niche that will become something big in the future. And it's it's no one will ever say, oh uh, wait, you chose uh, augmented reality or virtual reality and it failed and that was a failure for you in your career. No, everyone will always reward risk and, uh, and I think it's, it's worth taking. Yes, absolutely. So that, that's the combining of the yin and the yang, which is the yang is, okay, I'm going to get into some industry uh, and then the yin is, which is to respond to any particular day and any trends and, and you, take, you take turns and um, you navigate your boat. And of course, you're quite right. There's always change. It's one thing that surprised me in the seven years of the podcast. I would never have guessed seven years ago it would last seven years. I thought, oh, well, three years and it'll have um, settled down. Um, and uh, territory is taken. So for example, whoever the first person in the world thought of registering sex.com as a website name did pretty well out of it. But then 20 years later, you've got to sub subset and subset and subset. And in the dating apps, as you say, the, the dating app for the 50s. But you're being a little bit uh, modest, perhaps, Antoine, because whilst everything you say is, of course, completely true. I mean, at the moment in my inbox, sad to say, I've got 800 incoming emails for the next half a dozen on the show there's no end of people trying to do stuff so literally I'm just panning for gold and there's a hell of a lot of sand out there um, there is very few very very few companies that are like yours I mean you, you started up relatively recently you can you can tell us about that but there's very few in these hundreds of emails I get that go wow not only is that new and fresh, but in this case, it's something I think is uh, super cool. So you've done very well to spot this. So what was it that one morning led you to wake up and think, hey, I know what I'm going to do today. I'm going to found Tulip Share and it'll do governance tech. I mean, was it a particularly strong coffee or what? 
First, the deep and profound nature to keep the planet fair and sustainable. You know, I'm a father of two. My uh, little girls are four and uh, two years old. Do I think that the, the system in which we're living, because it is a real system, whether it's economic, environmental, demographic, it is a system, is fair and sustainable, and uh, they're going to have a happier life than I had in growing up in the 80s and the 90s? I don't think so. So it's really our goal to make sure that, you know, future generations have a, have, have a good life in a fair and sustainable system. Then it's about combining, combining the growth in, you know, retail shareholder and the growth in, uh, in, in, in everyone kind of today uh, trying to, to become a, an investors. And we're seeing this with the rise of uh, uh, retail investment apps, uh, whether in Europe or in North America. The other is the explosion. And I'm saying the explosion of impact investing and ethical investing. And uh, where I liked in your introduction is that there is a lot to change in that space. And clearly there is a lot to, uh, to improve and make better. But there is a rise there and we have to notice it and acknowledge it. So it's really those two industries kind of colliding and ultimately seeing as well how can, um, how can we create an all new asset class by combining both of them, which is, you know, you have fractional shareholders that are growing today where people, most of them don't know, but they have also fractional shareholder rights attached to their investment. You know, every dollar you invest has uh, shareholder rights attached to it. Who is voting today on, uh, on your behalf on, those, uh, on your dollar invested? That's the real question. And how can we combine the power of fractional share ownership and therefore fractional shareholder rights with the marketing and what's attracting people to ESG impact investing, ethical investing? That's really led me to think, whoa, there is a whole new asset class that can be created here if you let people buy stock in publicly listed company and utilize their shareholder rights for the first time. If you ask everyone you know, Mike, uh, you know, who owns Apple stock or uh, who owns Amazon stock, have they ever voted on a shareholder resolution? The answer is going to be very few. Most of them don't even know they're allowed to, to vote. And, and, and a lot of them actually don't even know how to vote. So... Realistically, we have a, a great opportunity for us. So there's a, a lot in what you say there, and we'll come back to the mechanism of this. Having owned shares back in the day when you had a paper share certificate and you got sent something in the post saying there's an AGM, you know, I could vote my one BP share for this or for that, but it wouldn't make uh, any impact whatsoever. I don't think BP would notice whether I'd voted or, or not. So we need to come back to how you do the jujitsu in tulip share, so how you have a tiny amount of force but achieve a, um, a big result. But I think just in terms of this whole governance approach, just briefly to run through it, I mean, in terms of the 500-year history of the company, uh, certainly in England, for most of that time, in a sense, the issue didn't really exist. So chartered companies existed for uh, hundreds of years. The BBC is still a chartered company. And chartered companies back in the day were 100% controlled on a two-tier board by their owners. So their owners decided what happened, what they wanted from the company. What we call a board today was called the Court uh, of Committees. Uh, directors were originally called committees because they were people who were committed to the owners to do something. And so they got on with that. Anyway, Fast forward 19th century, the company law company comes in and we move from owner-centric governance to management-centric governance. A very complex story about why that happened. But from the 19th century onward, certainly here and in most other countries, management tended to own what happened in companies and owners got pushed further and further away. So, for example, in the 19th century, we get this idea of management accounts. When I was at a big bank, I saw the management accounts. The owners weren't allowed to see that. 
you know, this whole category of stuff that's private and the, and the management of companies get more and more information and the owners get pushed further and further away. And then from 1990s onwards, we've had the corporate governance world, where in the UK, the, the state has come out with 24 codes that companies must do and, and all sorts of stuff um, making it complicated. And then just to add to that, the, the background to this, one thing which I think is underestimated by many people is the influence of proxy vote advisors. So with the massive rise in index funds, you know, most of my money is invested in index funds. The US, for example, or the UK says to fund managers, you must vote. Index funds can't afford to research every company and every issue. So they hand the voting over to proxy advisors. And I think something crazy, like there are two proxy advisors, two American ones, who control something like 90% of the marketplace. So the very structure of corporate governance has gone over centuries from super distributed. That you know, a tulip share, no matter how big you got, will be controlled by you and the other people who owned it. To now, a hell of a lot of the, all the global stock markets are controlled by two companies, let alone the contraction, the fund management industry and, and BlackRock and all that. So what we've seen is an anti-democratic move. And it's very much the zeitgeist. I saw something at uh, Russell Brand, I think, a, a YouTube recently. The average billionaire pays about 2 or 3% in tax. I assume that you and I pay more than 2 or 3% in tax. So what has happened in governance terms, so my super big picture, is that the power has been concentrated and centralised and gone upwards, but very much away from the individual. That's a long preamble to say that what we absolutely need, and, and I think this is a key what, with what you're doing, is we need a way, a mechanism in the internet age of giving power back to small shareholders. So I gave the example of your Apple campaign. Yes, of course, third parties should be allowed to do it. But the conventional way, which is you form a hedge fund, you have a trillion dollars, you have sort of 5% of Apple stock, you get on the board and you make a difference. I assume you can't do that. So what's your clever jujitsu to get around this, the fact that you will only be able to amass a small percentage of Amazon shares, for example? Let's come back just for a second to what you just said. Um, I think it's really important for everyone and your listener to understand that people today, whether they live in Western Europe, in North America, or just globally, they need to understand that they can have an impact on their life. And it's something that we're noticing, whether it's in the economic or political system, everyone feels completely disconnected from everything that's happening around them. They feel like, you know, the less and less, the distrust in democracy, which is rising is like, okay, I vote, but you know, as a citizen, my vote do not count. I don't change anything. Everything is being negotiated or discussed in centralized entities uh, and political organizations that are completely affecting my life. And I'm completely disconnected from it. As a consumer as well, you know, you could say, okay, I'm going to stop buying this or this product, but ultimately on my own, what am I going to change, you know? And that's why boycotting or protesting have been going on for years with what I would call, like, ultimately, if you look at the status today, very little results. Yet, you know, if you want to have your voice heard and have an impact on your life, instead of complaining that it's becoming more and more corporatist and more and more controlled by corporation, which are less and less listened by government, then in that case, you should become an owner of the company. You should buy a piece of the company and have a say in the way the business is run. And what we want is really to let retail shareholders have their voice heard. And for the first time, it's utilizing all the tools and the playbook of corporate governance. But ultimately, it's to give back to people the opportunities to have their voice heard. So yeah, that, I mean, ultimately, that's it. You know, really what we want is to, to build is to industrialize a tool for people to have their voice heard and vote with their money. Right. Okay. So I agree with that. So how do you get over the problem that you're unlikely to be able to get, say, for the sake of argument, 10% of Apple stock people um, uh, signing up, even if you're immensely successful? 
One thing that nobody knows is that so corporate governance through shareholder resolution is not controlled by the company themselves, but its thresholds and mechanism are fixed by the SEC, which are also impacted by the current you know, political uh, administration uh, in power at this moment. So the reality is that it's not in the matter of Apple or in the matter of the companies to decide, you know, how you can have a say in the way their business is run. It's the SEC that decides. So that's the that's the beauty of it. Currently, the thresholds to be able to submit a shareholder proposal has been increased from $2,000 of um, a share owned for a, a period of a year to $25,000, so which still makes it very accessible for a U.S. publicly listed company owning $25,000 worth of stocks over a year gives you access to certain corporate governance playbook that can have an impact on the way a business is run and that can have an impact on the way exec and investors relation and board of directors perceive their future company strategy. A lot of it is in signaling, that's true, but ultimately it does give you access to the boardroom and people that will listen to you because it is written. <laughs> it is written in the rules that they have to listen, at least listen. Yes, and presumably one needs to amplify that with media picking up the issue. So let's say for the sake of argument that everybody listens to this and that people have got shares in, in all sorts of companies and they submit you know, a thousand resolutions and, uh, to, to companies and all this kind of thing. Well, the board sits there, well, it has to go through them, as you say, but it doesn't mean that anything happens. It said, oh, yes, we've considered these resolutions. Thank you very much. I mean, an example of, of governance tech in the UK where there's a mechanism for submitting a petition to parliament to discuss so-and-so and so-and-so, and, -so, and I've signed many and I've actually given up doing them now because you get this basically utterly patronising civil service he replied back, which is, you know, basically piss off, pleb, we're not interested in your views. But what it doesn't say that, but it really means that. And it says, oh, yes, the government has considered this matter and does feel that it's in the interests of blah, blah, blah. So you just get brushed away. So is there not a role in amplifying these campaigns with, with media attention or social media attention and basically creating a bit of embarrassment factor for the company to leverage the fact that you have a resolution through as an Apple board meeting? It's not really about creating an embarrassment because by becoming an owner of the company, you're actually telling to the business that we will support whatever goes into the direction that we actually want. So it's not, we're not building an opposition or an actual uh, uh, campaign, which is okay, like let's uh, fight. It's, it's not a fight. It is more, we're, we're seeing this as a partnership. And for the first time, the opportunity for the company to say, we have a group of shareholder that is decentralized and that will also support us for every uh, every resolutions or every project that we take that go along this direction. So it's more a paradigm shift. It's about telling internally that, you know, shareholders want it. So and at least some of the shareholder wants it and now you can you can try to change the change change your company from within. What you need to to also realize is is um they don't receive millions of shareholder resolutions, you know. They are there are actually very few that are uh, being submitted and accepted and published on the proxy statement each year. So if you look at companies like Coca-Cola, like Amazon, you know, you can count the amount of shareholder resolutions being voted on at every AGM on the hands. Why does a corporation with millions of shareholders and, uh, and whether they're retails or institutions, you know, do not get swarm with uh, with resolutions and IDs? Uh, that's that's the right questions, and that's why we want to change that. We want to give the the power to the people, and we want to give this voice and unify this voice um, through our campaigns. One thing that you need to to remind to your I want to remind to your listener is that on Tulip Share, when you're buying a stock, so we're a broker dealer where people come and buy stocks in publicly listed company, and when you buy a stock, you know exactly what's the campaign that's attached to it. 
it's not an open uh, an open door policy. It's uh, if you're buying Amazon, it's to improve the workers' conditions in the delivery center, and that's the agenda that we're pushing to the company up until the AGM. And that's very important uh, because it does create a centralized system for a decentralized voice, which is the retail ownership globally. Even though today we're only in the UK because we only have uh, the, the UK broker uh, authorization, but we're, we're working into our global expansion. So briefly, how does the Tulip Share model work? So let's say Amazon's a good example. Uh, unsurprisingly, we use Amazon all the time. Unsurprisingly, I feel very sorry for the guy. I, when I see an Amazon person coming, I always run and open the door because they're paid about 50 PO delivery and they've got a million deliveries a day. And if I can help them and call off and they say, oh, thank you very much, you know, you know, it's really helped. So I don't really want to see people sort of suffering like that for trying to make my life easier by bringing me stuff. So let's say I think, OK, yes, I, I want to sign up to that thing. So how does the model work? How many shares do I need? to buy from Tulip Share to join in one of your campaigns? How do you have, as it were, my voting rights if you're just a sort of a broker buying me, me shares? How does the mechanism work? Well, the mechanism is very simple. You just go on tulipshare.com or you download our app and you find the campaign that fits your value. Most of the users coming onto the platform are value-driven investors. They have something that they're coming for the campaign. It's because they've heard that they can improve workers' condition at Amazon or that they can reduce plastic pollution at Coca-Cola or that they can increase the right to repair policy and exposure at Apple that they're coming onto the platform. And then, just like any broker, you come, you, you create an account, you top up your account with your wallet on the platform, and then you just buy stocks. And as soon as you buy stock, you can buy stock from as little as one pound. And, and we utilize this pound, we utilize this fractional share because it has fractional shareholder rights attached to it. And we use that when we engage with the company to not only leverage Mike's position, but Mike plus everyone involved on the Tulip Share platform. That's the mechanism I'm not understanding at the moment, which is, as I understand, if I just go and buy one Amazon share, should we say, or, or from some broker on the internet, I will own the share, but the voting rights will be with me. So I actually have to vote at their AGM. How does it work so you combine everybody's votes? Does Tulip Share buy one Amazon share, submit the resolution and then send an email out to, let's say, the hundred, like I say, a hundred people bought the shares and you say, hey, guys, look, we've got this resolution on the thing. Can you all vote like that? Or do you somehow manage to strip off the voting rights as it passes through you? This is the bit I'm confused about. Yeah, so it's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. Through the, the terms and service and the acceptance of the users, we are able to uh, represent their voting rights or they can decide to vote on themselves on the issue when they when we will get the when they will receive the proxy statement. So if you want to receive Amazon proxy statement and vote on all of the item there, you can do it. We will encourage you to vote like any other broker, like even more than any other broker. We will push you to vote and we will remind you that the item number four is actually Tulip share item, as for, for an example. But users who don't want to actually do any of that, they just want to put their money on Tulip share and, and, and transfer us the, the, their voting rights can as well. And we, we, we'll just have to collect it per campaign so that then we can vote on their behalf on the day of the vote. Before that, we are using the aggregated position to engage with the company. The voting itself is just one momentum in the in the campaign. You know, it's it's just like almost it's the end game in the campaign. It's the, it's a vote. But we see most of our resolutions being sorted out through negotiations and discussions with the company themselves, and them providing answers, response, and probably update on their strategy that we report back to our user base. So. The voting is mostly um, one of the tools that we have into our corporate governance mechanism. 
I see, so that, that's clear. So basically I buy a share through you as a broker dealer and just like any other broker dealer, I can own my own vo voting rights and you'll just remind me with some email or app notification, hey Mike, you're, you know, the campaign you were interested in is coming up, do vote because you've got the rights. Or basically I can e effectively schematically appoint you as my proxy advisor and, and you, you do sort of voting your stuff for me, I, I get that. So in terms of this being a small part of it, you mentioned there the need to engage with a company and all this kind of stuff. And of course the need to research issues in, in the first place so that they're well-founded and you've got some good arguments and all that kind of thing. That presumably, which is one reason that the hedge funds in particular, but many, many investment managers actually, delegate their votes to proxy advisors. That's quite resource consuming and, and, and time consuming. So how do you hope to do this as anything other than a, a charity if you have to engage with all these companies? You must need quite a significant research department and an engagement department. So we have a scientific and ethical committee to define the campaigns. Our campaigns are created from bottom up, so our user base can submit campaign suggestions. And then we, we evaluate the feasibility and the, and the scientific backing of the campaigns before we submit a, a campaign to the, the platform itself. After this, well, we engage with the company uh, from day one just to let them know and ha have an opportunity to, to actually uh, enter into a constructive dialogue. What we want is change. So ultimately, whatever means we have to put to just obtain the change, we will do it. The size of the team obviously will, will grow as, 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 as the size of the campaign grow. You know, it's a, it's a matter of uh, you, need, you, ha you need to have people that are focused and specialists on each of the issues that we're trying to tackle. And they're very wide, whether it's environment, sustainability, human rights, labor laws, you name it, tax evasion. You know, there is lots of topics where you need specialists and almost uh, an ability to, uh, well, to provide for the company a very strong uh, strategical change. So yeah, the company will grow. We have, you know, we're, we're going to double the team size by the, by the end of the winter. So probably by Q1 2022, uh, and it is continuously growing at the moment. So by the way, we are, we are hiring. So if anyone who's listening. You can join in, which sounds good. Um, but and just in terms of the, the business model, is your only source of revenue from the broker dealery bit where I buy one Amazon share through you and you get sort of one cent or whatever the commission is and you save those cents up and you invest it in the research department? Or do you see going forwards that you'll have a subscription model, which is, look, you can be a member of Tulip Share and it's 100 bucks a year and you can change the world with your investment? I mean, I wasn't quite clear on the business model. Yeah, so we're taking a commission on, uh, on, on each investment. So every time you make a transaction, we take a percentage out of your investment notional value. And we take a commission on the effects as well. As we're trading, you know, on the US stock market, when you're converting GBP to, uh, to, to USD, we are taking a, a commission there. All the commissions are utilized to finance the platform. The platform meaning it's, uh, it's marketing, it's growth, it's, it's, it's legal uh, strength. I mean, you know, we're going against a big corporation here that have a playbook to actually put uh, uh, sticks into our wheels. And therefore, we need to make sure that we have the right team at the right place at the right time with the right skill set, whether it's in the ethical and scientific to strengthen our campaign proposition, or it's in the legal and compliance team, or it's into simply the product and marketing uh, growth. So our user base are, are unique in a way where we're noticing so far since our launch in July is that they're most likely first-time buyer. So they're not really seasoned investors. They are most likely first-time buyer and we are the foot in the door of the financial system for them. Despite what I said at the start regarding a retail investment boom, if you look at the numbers, you know, probably 90% of the UK population do not directly own any shares. And what's going to convince them to become an investor and a shareholder? I believe it's through value. It's through value-driven investment and an impact uh, investing platform like TulipShare.
Yes, and I, I like the idea that you guys are, as it were, definancializing investment. I mean, one of the worst trends, which has been a very American one over my career in recent decades, has been the trend to turn everything into dollars. You know, it snows in London and, and someone will say this has cost $100 million of production as if we were sort of the, all the tractor factories were shut or something like that. And dollars becomes the only thing. But historically, there was never this separation of money as a god in its own right, and then society sort of somehow left to sort itself out. The, the two were very much aligned, so I like the fact that you're putting them back together. And as a serial entrepreneur, I'm sure you can work out the arithmetic so that, you know, at a certain point in time after the appropriate growth, your revenue starts increasing and paying the cost. Now, there's a big question here, um, which we could do a whole podcast on, which I don't want to do a whole podcast on it because time's going by. But I just like your um, overview, which is in terms of the ethical investment sector, as you say, it's taken off, it's been a huge thing. Yet, despite a huge ethical investment sector growing, as you say, the list of AGM resolutions is quite small. I've been listening quite a bit recently, to, actually, to a chap called Paul Kingsnorth, very interesting guy. He's an author. He's been an eco-activist for decades. He was called the biggest troublemaker in the UK a few decades ago. He changed himself to bridges. He now lives in the west of Ireland. He has a compost toilet. He doesn't have a dishwasher, so you can't get more eco. And I was hearing a fascinating um, interview with him, which is why has he moved away from the movement? He said, I haven't moved away the, from the movement. I'm really passionately caring about the environment, which is why I don't have a dishwasher and why I've got a compost toilet. He said, but what I've moved away from is what's rather the movement has moved away from me because it has all become dominated by technology. And there's one problem. It's climate change. We need windmills, even if the concrete doesn't work. And it's gone away, he says, from what used to exist in the 70s and 80s, which is the environmentalism covered a thousand things or a hundred thousand things. There's so many different aspects of, of, of what we need to do to protect the environment for the children and the grandchildren. You know, it's more than just having 400 private jets flying into Glasgow. So that gave me a bit of a feeling that, like many things, everything has come a bit oversimplified in the sort of Twitter age where everything needs to be fitted into one tweet as opposed to the huge complexity of life as reflected in your campaigns. But anyway, that's just my background, and that's this chap called Paul Kingsnorth, who spent decades doing this. But what, what is your you know, just simple take on why, when there's a huge ethical investment sector, why shareholder resolutions are only five long and not 55 long or 555 long? Why isn't the ethical sector saying, hey, Amazon, can you get rid of suicide, uh, Apple, get rid of suicide nets, or hey, Amazon, don't make your people run at Mike's Drive? And why isn't the sector doing that already? Big question, I know, but I don't know whether there's a sort of simple take that you have on it. Are people asking it? That's one of the first point, you know, our shareholder asking it because a corporation by design has to answer to its shareholders. So if shareholders do not ask it, do not expect a corporation, which is also a very complex structure and system to actually become sentient and, and sort itself out. You know, most of the people in those companies are, 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 are executives just applying a strategy that's being given from top to bottom. So I don't blame it on the companies. Uh, I don't blame it on the employees. I think it's more about asking it, putting the compass pointing north and asking them, you know, can we apply this change? Now, to do this, using a platform like TulipShare, we really want to raise the debate that ESG is economics down the line. You know, that's what people need to understand is that it might have short-term impact, but in medium and long-term, we see this as, you know, the rising tides that raise all boats and that needs to be ingrained in people's whether they're retail shareholders' head or into just corporate uh, mindset. Otherwise, we're just going to hit the wall. And that's where, that's where we're going today at full speed. I mean, you mentioned Glasgow and the private jet and the, and the irony behind all this. And, and, and it's, um, it's really about, okay, 
can we really change the world? And if you want to change the world, we believe that you need money to change the, the system that we live in. And what's better way than entering through the front door of Wall Street and saying we can become shareholders and have a say in the way businesses are run and have an impact on our life? All of us. Once people realize that by investing just $10 on a platform like ours, you can maybe change Coca-Cola, change the big oil and gas business, then you really change our life for the better. Brilliant. Well, uh, as you know, I'm a, I'm a complete convert to Tulip Share. I think you're the most <laughs> exciting firm I've, I've, I've seen so, some time because I do think the world is going wrong. And, you know, answering my own question, I think one of the things is about ethical investment. And we've had a firm on the show and it's all good. And I know lots of people in ESG, of course. But I know a lot of people, frankly, wearing suits and tie who just regard it as a new racket and way to make money. And they simplify it to two or three things. Oh, there's climate change and that's it, as opposed to this huge complexity. So I think maybe one of the issues here is, is just my thinking is that uh, anybody who's invested in an ethical investment fund ought to hassle their fund manager and make sure that they're doing something more than taking a lot of money for simply just, you know, having two or three key issues and just all, all they ever do is represent those issues rather than the complexity. So we could talk about this all day, but you've got an interesting journey ahead and maybe we'll have you back in the show in two or three years. We'll hear a little bit more about you in a minute. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I hope you're motivated by Antoine's passion and enthusiasm that it's possible for people to change society and to, in my terms, reverse the flood up of governance and control that we're seeing on a, over and over and talking this, this climate, so-called climate change thing. Our Emperor Nero, charge of the UK, uh, I saw yesterday saying, we've got to get rid of cash to save the climate. And, oh my God. Anyway, I'd also like to thank my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The enlistedboard.com your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So Antoine, we've mentioned Tulip Share once or twice. You've just mentioned uh, just in passing things like you can just put 10 bucks in and, and, and make a difference. Before you tell the listeners anything you would like them to know that we haven't mentioned on a practical basis, as you say, you launched in, in July. When did you actually found? July is pretty soon, so I doubt that you've got much progress so far, but uh, how's it going and what are your plans for the future? We have three live campaigns, as I said, you know, for Amazon, Coca-Cola and Apple, each in different verticals that we want to tackle and campaigns. Uh, we're seeing a tremendous response from the UK public. There is really an appetite for a product like ours. People are telling us for the first time I can have my voice heard. So it's really something that we want to cultivate and ingrain. We're trying to open 12 more campaigns and uh, we're expanding our regulatory framework to uh, obtain a broker-dealer license in EU and the US. The goal is to unify shareholders, whether they live in Stockholm, Madrid, Los Angeles, or Toronto, and try to give those people a voice, uh, a voice that they haven't gotten for so long and that they today uh, um, completely left out or sometimes don't even know about it. So it is our role to, uh, to actually put this message out there explain to people how it works and, and show them during the 2022 proxy season that it can be done. When it will be done, I can tell you that everyone, it will become like a ha-ha moment in their head where, okay, finally, you know, they've delivered on one of their campaigns uh, and, and we're going to do everything we can to do it. And then hopefully, you know, people will realize that you can use money to change the world you live in. 
Well, that's a brilliant slogan, isn't it? And you said that you're hiring at the moment. Um, are you just in London? And, and what kind of people are you hiring? Ah, the company is full remote, actually. So, you know, we're, we're very 2021. We are hiring remotely. Uh, we're hiring people in product management, in engineering, in the legal and compliance team, in the, in the design and marketing and growth and brand and PR. So every aspect of the company is just massively growing at the moment. So anyone who's out there and, and, and want to join a, a a real impactful business like ours, just, you know, reach out to me, uh, go on tulipshell.com and find our, our emails or just send me an email uh, directly. Uh, the email is very simple. It's Antoine at tulipshell.com and uh, I'll review every everyone who, who's applying. And for people without French lessons at school, like that's Antoine ending in an E at tulipshell.com. <laughs> exactly. Com not uh, Antoine with just an N at the end. Well, that's absolutely brilliant. I don't have many new companies on the podcast, largely because uh, I see the podcast as being about me panning for gold in his 800 and trying to find people who have really achieved something and have really got a long way down the track and can share what they've learned for the benefit of the community uh, and making all fintechs do well. But there are occasions when there is a new company that just stands out a mile and that there is one in which were I to be a fairy godmother uh, with a magic wand, I would definitely wave my magic wand at you and, uh, and wish you success in terms of how hard can it be. You've, you've been in business before, you know that actually it turns out to be a bit harder than you imagine. But what you're doing is absolutely brilliant, as I say, though, you know, there are not many governments tech around. I happen to vote for Emperor Nero. And uh, the manifesto I voted on 18 months ago is the opposite of all the policies he's doing. I wanted a, a low tax, free port, entrepreneurial society. And so we've got the biggest tax burden since the Second World War. So governance tech as a whole in terms of the state is, is a huge issue in the UK. And uh, from what I've seen in my newspapers uh, with Monsieur Macron as well in recent years in, in France, but let's put that to one side, just in terms of the corporate stuff, there is a hell of a lot of opportunity. I'm very interested in this stuff about how short the AGM list is and I shall follow your progress with interest and uh, as I say from a 500 year perspective in the, it went wrong as early as the 19th century but it, the financialization, the Americanization of the world, the dollarization, the late uh, uh, 20th century increased it in that management took over the company but it's time for owners or people who wish to get companies to do something useful to be able to fight back. And I'm glad that you've given them the opportunity, Antoine, and I wish you and all your Tulip shares every success in the future. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience, and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and FinTech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash Mike Balliman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the 